You sending the whoop? Shit, that's all you had to say. Get away from her, you bitch. Banana. Fortune and glory, kid. Fortune and glory. You're not even interesting enough to make me sick. It's only an island if you look at it from the water. I'm your density. You think I'm gorgeous? You want to kiss me? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sending the Wolf. My name is Clark Wolf. Thank you so much for joining me. I have a great episode for you today. I am super excited to get this to you. I'm actually recording all of this uh, on Monday, April 1st, the day before it's supposed to go live, because my guest is a very busy man at the moment. My guest is one half of the directing duo that brings you the new Pet Cemetery and also brought you the indie cult favorite Starry Eyes. My guest is Dennis Widmeyer. Dennis is one half of a directing duo uh, alongside Kevin Kelsch, uh, and um, he and Kevin have been friends of mine for a while, and uh, Dennis and I go back, I think, probably about five or six years at this point, and I couldn't be happier for him and Kevin. Um, and so, okay, so their new movie is Pet Cemetery, which is out this Friday, April 5th. However, Dennis picked a movie that uh, I did not see coming. And that is the Lord of the Rings, the fellowship of the ring. So, um, you know, we talked a little, we talked a lot about a lot of different things. Um, we talked about adaptations and, and iconic books and bringing them to the screen. We talked about indie sensibilities and moving to bigger budget, uh, endeavors. We talked about fantasy and the landscape when, you know, in 2000, One, when this movie came out, um, the first Harry Potter movie had just come out the week before, or I'm sorry, the month before. Um, But, you know, there was no Game of Thrones TV show and a lot of the um, big fantasy films that had found their way uh, to to the theaters, they weren't necessarily taking off. And so we discussed what a risk it was to not only to greenlight this first film, but to say, all right, we're going to bet the farm on this trilogy and, and trust it to someone like Peter Jackson, who at the time had a bunch of very strange, dark um, horror comedies to his name, primarily, of course, of course, there's heavenly creatures, um, and uh, and had just had a, a pretty big failure with the movie The Frighteners. So it was a really fun conversation. Dennis is a cinephile through and through. He is uh, he he's a guy who can you can talk movies with for for hours and hours at a time. But he's also a guy of very eclectic tastes. And so I was thrilled. Um, we all were betting, as you'll hear, that he was going to go rocky for this episode. And when he came out, out swinging with Fellowship of the Ring, I was like, whoa, this is crazy. Um, and we do talk a lot about, you know, this is a great episode for for any up-and-coming directors um, or people interested in film production, but specifically writer-directors or directors, because Dennis is very candid about his experiences, um, you know, in this system and, and trying to make movies. And now here he is with a huge Stephen King adaptation coming to theaters in just a couple of days. And I have seen Pet Cemetery. I really, really like it, especially considering what they were able to do and adapt from that book and really, really capture the essence of the book. It, 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 is pretty awesome, but we talk about that too. No spoilers for Pet Cemetery. Um, we tried to keep those out considering the movie hasn't come out yet, but, um, it's, it's a really, really fun discussion and hopefully we'll give you an insight into uh, a passionate fan, but also into a working entertainment professional. Um, so here he is, Dennis Widmeyer, uh, talking about Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. Are you, you're directing my podcast. <laughs> I know, I just move it a little bit. <laughs> I can't help it. You can't turn it off. I can't turn That's it off. That's good, though. That's why I want you on the podcast. Okay. I don't know how many directors 
I've actually had on the show. Now who, that who are some of the people it. you've had on the show? What are some of the movies they've done? Well, Lynn Shay's done the show. Oh, she's awesome. She's amazing. Okay. Uh, I'm trying to think of like some other higher profile people that we would think. Well, Chelsea Stardust has done the there show, but yeah. it hasn't gone up yet. She's getting all fancy schmancy. She <laughs> is. And she's getting ready for her big debut. The day that we're recording this, actually, uh, I am under the impression that her trailer is dropping for okay. All That We Destroy, cool. which is the Hulu movie. Meaning today. Today. Cool. That's right, okay. and this is gonna have. So I, I started recording. I like to oh, I like to did. sneak it in. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I was uh, ready. But good. Um, but I I uh, this is probably gonna be the fastest turnaround I've ever done on an episode because uh, we're recording this on a Monday, April first, okay. and I am trying to have it up by tomorrow, Tuesday, April second. Uh, and it's crazy too that the the start date of our film, the premiere, got pushed till May fifth. That's nuts. The the what? We're not opening April fifth anymore. We're opening a month from now. What? April Fools. Uh, <laughs> you fell right into it. Dennis. If you can see her face, I'm like, how am I pulling, how am I getting her right now? It's so obviously April Fools. Day. I, uh, shame on you for okay. April Foolsing me. I help it. That's very rude. I know. No, I'm, I'm kidding. It's not. It's not. I'm sorry. I need a good April Fools joke, I suppose, every now and then. We all do every now and then. So I just had an audition for a, um, a hosting for a brand, okay. an entertainment brand, and uh, they had me do a fake news segment okay. where they made up in the room like a, a news story and right. had me sort of deliver the news but also provide commentary on it. So the news story that they created that they made up in the room was because they know I love horror. So they were like, okay, uh, Stephen King adaptations are so hot right now. It, Pet Cemetery. So we've just learned that they're remaking The Shining and Charlie Day <laughs> is going to play Jack Torrance, <laughs> and they were like, and who, who should direct it? And I was like, well, Mike Flanagan obviously should right. direct it. And so they were like, okay, go. And then by the time I finished my fake news story, they were like, actually, we kind of want to see that movie now. I want to see it I too. Mean, yeah. And I was I like- I love Charlie Day. Yeah, me too. And he kind of has a Nicholson thing going. I he does. That. And you've, have you read the book? Uh, of course. Yeah, yeah. I love it. Yeah. So the book is so different from the movie mm -hmm. yeah. that I feel like there actually are things that Charlie Day would lend himself yeah, to no, totally. Jack Torrance more so than a Jack Nicholson, and honestly. Flanagan's movie is based on Dr. Sleep, which is the sequel to the book. Obviously That's not right. the movie. That's so right. his uh, Dr. Sleep is going to be, you know, in canon with, uh, yes. with, the, with the book. So that's interesting how yeah. that's going to fit with the movie, you know? Like, or if he's going to have to, like, balance that, that tightrope of do I then you know, ignore certain things that The Shining did that the book version of The Shining yep. didn't do. Yep. Like, I'm really curious how he's going to navigate that. Yeah, me you know? too, especially considering that he is such a Stephen King fan right. as opposed to, I mean, I'm sure he's a movie, mm -hmm. obviously he loves movies, but you yeah. know, he loves the work so No, much. I know, that's, that's going to be tough. So do we do intro or are you going to do that separately? I do or? it separately. So that's already done. It's it's gonna edit be that done. Part out, uh, perfect. No, I'm not editing it out. I'm leaving it in. <laughs> okay. Directing my podcast. I'm directing again. I wanna... I'll stop directing. Okay. So before we get into the actual movie that we're here to talk about, I want to give the audience a little bit of background because you and I have been friends for a long time. Probably five to seven years. Yeah, yeah. a while. Yeah. And um, I, you know, we we knew each other before you made Starry Eyes. Correct. And yeah. then uh, I remember I was telling Christine, your lovely wife and my lovely friend, um, that I remember interviewing you and Kevin right. uh, on the phone for like a phoner from probably Nerdist at right. the time. And um, it's just amazing to see <laughs> where you guys have gone. I know. It's weird. Are you hearing her by the way or no? No. No. You're not hearing that? No. You sure? Positive. Got it. I'll cut that part out. <laughs> I'm not uh, cutting it out. Believe no, me, it. I think we met through mutual friends. And um, the thing about horror and, and about horror community in LA specifically is it's very tight knit, you know? And so a lot of the people that I know, including you mm -hmm. and probably vice versa for you, you meet through these mutual fans of yeah. horror, you know? So it's like, Pretty much like the bulk of my entire friendship circle at this point now is people I've met through that community. And it really is a community. It's yeah. And it's amazing too to see like how everybody has evolved and mm -hmm. grown and where they have gone. Like when I first met you, I was, you know, doing the podcast with Ryan mm -hmm. and you know, seeing Ryan evolve from being like the managing editor of a horror website Crazy to hair. now this very influential executive for Blumhouse. Yeah. It's a lot like of our friends, yeah. a lot of our friends have mm -hmm. have really kind of moved up yeah. in a lot of ways. And now you're acting and you're writing yeah. and you're evolving as well. I mean, everybody's got their path. I mean, know? I I hope that uh, I I hope to have uh, some more marquee successes. I think 
Yes. I don't have to hold my breath too long. I think it's happening very soon. Well, I appreciate so, that. Yeah. We'll see. But I'm so <laughs> proud of you guys. Uh, and, and Kevin, I want to have on the show too, but I wanted to have you guys. Well, actually, it was very funny because when we were setting this up, you were like, do you want to have both of us? And I was like, well, kind of, but I only have two microphones, so I don't know how to yeah. do Yeah, and you don't have two hours for this too. That, that's right. And plus, yeah. Kevin, uh, I, I won't say my movie is yet, but it definitely would not be Kevin's movie. Kevin would have a very different movie. So. Well, and that's the thing too is like, you know, you guys are co-directors, but you're right. obviously different people. People, yeah. And I know sitting down with the two of you would allow for very different yeah. conversation. Oh, totally, yeah. Um, and so before we get into the movie that you chose, I did want to ask for our audience listening, because I know that there are a lot of like movie fans out there, and I know you've had this question before, but I do think it's interesting. Um, I, I talk about, can you talk a little bit quickly about right. how you and Kevin work as a directing team? Right. Because a lot of people have this idea about what a director is and what mm -hmm. a director does and yeah. might not lend itself to having two people. No, I mean, uh, I honestly think that if you were a director already for like five, three, 20 years, and then decided to partner with somebody that deep into your career, it, it might not work. I think the only reason why, well, one of the reasons why it works for Kevin and I is, uh, we're, we're friends, we've been friends for 25 years. We started writing screenplays together mm -hmm. almost 25 years ago, meaning we discovered each other and became friends and uh, collaborators at a time when we were still getting inspired and learning what we liked and discovering new movies together. So like I was at about like 17 or 18, I think Kevin was around 20, and so a lot of these big influential movies on us, we saw at the same time together yeah. in a theater, yeah. and then they informed us, you know? So. Because of that, our visions evolved at the same time. It wasn't like by the time I met Kevin, I, I was specifically this person, and I had to hope and pray that that, that my likes were the same as Kevin's. Our likes uh, were formed together, mm -hmm. you know? So that alone helps it tremendously. Yeah. But uh, beyond that, though, it's not like one of us likes to uh, only work with the cast and then one of us only works with the cameramen. We both want to be directors fully fleshed out, mm -hmm. you know? We both want to do it all. So when we get on set, we don't designate certain roles. It's that we all want to do everything, and so we, we do everything, and we just make sure that we've uh, prepped enough. It's almost like we have to do more prep, because right. we have to make sure we're on the same page. Exactly. You don't want to be on set with an actor, and Kevin's got a very different idea for something that I don't. We want to have had that conversation already, you know? So what you do is you do all that prep, you do all those conversations beforehand, and by the time you get on set, uh, you should be able to ask me a question and Kevin would have the same answer. Yeah. And nine times out of 10, that's the case. And the one, the, the few times where it's not, uh, we just go off on the side and we discuss it. And if we can't agree on something, we come up with something new. And the something new is usually better. You know? That's interesting. Because you're pushing yourself. Because film is so collaborative that some directors, writers, producers maybe aren't as good at working with a ton of people on a film crew. Mm -hmm. But by the nature of our relationship, Kevin and I are already have to be collaborative with each other. So by the time we get on set, we're, we're, we're already in that realm of knowing how to collaborate with each other. Yeah. Hence, we're good at doing it with the rest of the whole crew. That's you know? that's so. actually so insightful. Yeah. That's really, helpful, you know? really cool. A yeah. really good way to put I, it. I think more and more you're going to see director teams. Yeah. You know? And it's, it's a tricky thing. Like when you're a team, you have to get... The, w, the DGA to sign off on that and give right. a certificate to the film you're making saying you're an official director's team. And the way they look at it is two bodies, one mind. So like if I'm sick one day, uh, Kevin can't still go on and direct. We have to both be on set together. Wow. You know, they, they really want to treat you like Siamese twins attached at the hip huh. and on set. And it's, that's kind of the way you should do it. You know? That's so interesting. So, yeah. No, yeah, we're good. Um, okay, so let's talk about... All right, so let's get into the movie that okay. you chose. Yes. Fellowship of the Ring. I know. <laughs> Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring. Now, listen, actually, so Chelsea Stardust, who uh, will be... Uh, her episode's going to be premiering on the show soon. She found out that you were coming on the show, and she was like, oh, has anyone picked Rocky? And right. I said, no. And she said, oh, De Dennis is going to pick Rocky. And <laughs> so yes. I told her yesterday, because uh, we're working on something together, I told her yesterday, so Dennis, picked did you notice I was watching Fellowship of oh, the were? Ring no, I, I was I, and she, she was like and she was like uh, yeah. Nice. And, yeah and I was like Dennis picked she right. was like what? Well, it's not even like ro the Rocky thing because uh, listeners, I am obsessed as my wife is with Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> Clark, you were at our wedding. We had we played like the Rocky Four training theme in Russia. Yes. After the at the reception, we played Living in America. We had uh, Cobra matchbooks from like the movie Cobra, you know, that had the Cobra on the front of it and stuff. So we're obsessed. Uh, but beyond that, though, I'm, I'm a big cinephile, and like I went through a wave recently. I'm still riding this wave where I. 
primarily when I would sit down every night to watch a movie, I would always stray towards the golden age of Hollywood. Mm -hmm. So I would usually watch things from like the 50s and below. And it, it wasn't because I was studying up or I, I love film history and the glamour of it all. I just enjoyed them better. I liked watching those movies more. You know, I, I hit a point where uh, maybe five years ago, I was home one night, it's before I met my wife, so I was single, and I was putting on Netflix, and I was like, all right, what am I gonna watch tonight? And this is before Netflix had a million options sure. the way it does now. And so I think it was like, all right, I'll watch uh, Captain America, First Avenger, or I'll throw on a horror movie I've seen 10 times, which I is fine, I do that all the time anyway, but I wasn't really feeling inspired on as an audience member. And uh, it occurred to me that a promise that I had made myself that I never fulfilled where I was going to say, no, I'm going to only try to focus on movies that I haven't seen that I know are considered some of the best movies ever made. So I'm going to go to the AFI top mm -hmm, 100 list. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to go through that list and I'm going to say, all right, I've seen a bunch of these, but there's probably a bunch that I haven't seen that I think I've seen, but I haven't. And of course, going through that list, I was like, wow, I've never seen Breakfast at Tiffany's. You know, mm. I think I thought I had, but I had not. Mm -hmm. So... I am pretty sure I'm going to love that movie. You know, I'm sure it has a reputation for a reason. Sure. And so I watched it, and I loved it. And it activated something in me where every night when I sat down, I said, I'm not going to do the lazy, easy thing and watch something that you know feels comfortable. I'm going to challenge myself and watch something I've never seen that I should have seen. Mm -hmm. You know, And so fast forward five, six years later, and that's become like one of the most important things in my life. You know, it, it saved me in a lot of ways, just I, watching movies and, you know. I follow you on Instagram and you are always watching a movie. Yeah. I mean, and I, I honestly, I am so impressed by that because I can't do it. It's what, you know what it is, is uh, I think sometimes there's a, there's a stigma that creatives put on themselves mm -hmm. where if they're not writing, acting, directing, actively going out and networking and taking meetings that they're not working. But some of the, one of the best things, best things you could do as a creative is uh, read books, mm -hmm. uh, watch movies, turn, go travel, you know? Uh, turn your brain off in one facet, but, but turn it on in another facet where you're now absorbing amazing things that have been done already that you can learn from, you know? Most of the time I want to get in a good headspace to write, I immerse myself in the types of movies that I want to write. Absolutely. You know? And so for me, it's not only entertainment, it's, it's like homework, mm -hmm. the best type of homework, but so, uh, and it gives you a vocabulary, you know, that you don't always have sometimes in meetings, on set with other creatives where, uh, not, not so you could just reference things in a Tarantino type way and show off, but so if you're trying to get a point across to somebody, and uh, you could cite a movie that they've seen, you could cite a specific scene or sure. moment to them, and they instantly know what you're talking about. So just having that, that wider uh, you know, knowledge yeah. of film is hugely important. You know? And so you said that you were doing this, uh, you know, looking at all these old school movies, the right. AFI list, mm -hmm. uh, but yet- And yet. <laughs> and yet, here we are. Well, that's, that's what I'm getting at, yeah. So, so what, what are so, you getting at? Okay, so I immediately went to, oh, you know, has anyone done Vertigo? And I think you said somebody has. Yes. You know, has anyone done Night of the Hunter, which you recommended? There's Rocky, of course, and there's all the Frank Capra films, William Wyler films. I mean, these are my some of my favorite films and filmmakers ever, you know? And then I looked and I said, oh my God, I forgot that the Fellowship of the Ring was on there. Mm -hmm. You know, that like a movie that's been made in the last 20 or so years is mm -hmm. on that top 100, you know? And so seeing that, uh, it was sort of a cheat, uh, but I was like, oh, I could kind of nerd out in a different facet of my, my you know, my likes, and that is J.R.R. Tolkien. So, and this ties into why I probably do what I do now, you know? write and direct and mm -hmm. all the things I love and are inspired by was uh, growing up, there were always books that you're supposed to read for school, mm -hmm. you know? And, uh, you know, The House of Mirth and The Chocolate War and A Separate Piece and Old Man in the Sea and, you know, uh, Pride and Prejudice. And these are all great books, you know? But uh, when you're a kid and you're that young, you don't realize they're great yet. So you're just looking for something kind of fun to read to kind of activate your brain. And so The Hobbit was a book that I think was the first time a book was wrecked that, that I had to read for my summer reading list in English. Oh, you know? that's interesting. And uh, I said, oh, this one looks a little different. Fantasy, I've never read fantasy before, you know? Uh, so that was the one book where I read it, devoured it, and realized, oh, okay, reading could also be this. And so I remember finishing The Hobbit, and then the amazing feeling I got when I realized it was like a, like a prelude to a much bigger thing, which is The Lord of the Rings. And I think that I was home with, uh, with uh, I was home for like three weeks sick. I had a, what do you call it? Uh, 
what the hell did I have? I had some really bad cold where I was vomiting, I couldn't go in, I couldn't be around people. And, uh, and so I had my mom get me the Fellowship of the Ring, you know? And I devoured it. And then I got to the end and it was like, to be continued. Like now we live in a culture where yeah. franchises are a thing sure. and everything's continued. If it's not continued, there's something wrong with it. But back then when I was 11 or 12 or however old I was, the idea of an ongoing series was like a new thing mm -hmm. for me, you know? And I remember the joy I felt when I was then able to start reading The Two Towers and it picked up exactly where The Fellowship of the Ring let off, left off and I was like, oh my God, you know? And then again with The Return of the King. And so what happened there was... Uh, Something happened to where I became obsessed with this world and I would go through periods of my life where I would be away from it, like a hibernation for a while, and then I would reread them again. And my wife jokes around, Christine, that recently I was in hibernation and didn't realize it. Mm. And then on Christmas day, we're sitting here on the couch, uh, like, what should we watch today? Thank you. And uh, she just brought me some awesome Shake Shack. <laughs> and uh, do you have any barbecue sauce? Are we out? <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, she loves the Rankin Bass Hobbit, you know? Uh -huh. Great yeah, yeah. adventure, you know? And so we were like, oh yeah, I haven't seen the cartoon in a while. Let's put that on. We put it on, and all of a sudden I was like, oh yeah, I love this. Mm -hmm. I love this stuff, you know? Now I have to devour all of it. Yeah. And that was December, you know? And since then, I've, 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 I'm in one of my activation periods. And this is probably like the eighth time I've read these books, mm. which is nuts because there's three of them. Mm -hmm. So do the math. So I've been, I've been coming back to these books all throughout my life. But uh, what happened was in the, what was it, the late 90s, early 2000s, mm -hmm. late 90s, I think, I was working in a bookstore and I was always tracking the history of them trying to make adaptations of these books. Yeah, sure. You know, so I think Sal Zaints uh, was a producer on the Ralph Bakshi version from 1978, 77. And the Beatles were going to try to make one on one point. They were going to hire Stanley Kubrick to direct it. Like, people don't know that, you know. And there were all these like, iterations of people trying to adapt this work. And then it just went away for a while, you know. And uh, it was a bummer. And then I heard, I think Miramax back in the day was trying to make two movies out of it. Mm. Then they brought on Peter Jackson and New Line got involved. And he was like, I want to make three movies. And I was like, oh, thank God. But I was one of those fanboys that was on the OneRing.net every day. Mm. That was the big Tolkien site. And was obsessively reading about the, uh, the productions of these movies. To the point where I was on board reading about it like four years before they even rolled a camera on the first movie. And to then get to go see the movies when they came out and to freaking love them, you know, like love them, see them multiple times. And they, that doesn't happen when you're that obsessed about something, you build it up in your head that much. And the movie still manages to like blow away your expectations. And then you want to read the book all over again, mm -hmm. you know, and then revisit it over and over again. And that was what happened with the fellowship of the ring. So for me, it's so instrumental because it's not just a movie. It's a movie that was a book and a book that was very uh, inspiring to me at a young age when I was discovering writing and starting to write my own stories and my own fantasy ideas and stuff. And I was discovering reading, which then obviously I discovered Stephen King. So all of that really came out of J.R.R. Tolkien and mm -hmm. The Hobbit, you know, and then The Lord of the Rings. Now, how do you, okay, so how do you, uh, this, this is a movie, this is a series of movies that has a, uh, you know, historical and emotional tie to you, mm -hmm. right? So, and I think same with Peter Jackson, mm -hmm. like these, yeah. and same with a lot of audience, a mm -hmm. lot of people have this history with these books. Right. But what do you think about the people that actually don't, that maybe have heard about the the Lord of the, they know what it is, right. they know who Tolkien is, yeah. they know what the Hobbit is, but they've never seen the cartoon or they've never read the books and, yeah. and they are going to go see these movies. I think there was, it, it probably felt like a gamble for the studio because I think that up until then, uh, fantasy as a genre and film was very hit or miss, you know? They had tried to reboot the Dungeons and Dragons movies yes, and that I didn't remember. work, you know, yeah. with Marlon Wayans, remember that? Yep, I do. And uh, the, the Game of Thrones didn't exist as a TV That's show. Right, yeah. You know, so really, like, I'm, I'm trying to think what the big and Harry Potter wasn't a thing. Harry then, right? Potter, I looked it up. Yeah, Harry I'm Potter, crazy. the movie, came out on November 16th, 2001. Fellowship of the Ring came out on December 19th, 2001. Yeah, they both came out wow. within like a month of each other. I didn't other. know that, yeah. And, and those books obviously were a huge thing for a young generation, but they, I, I, I think Lord of the Rings has this, has this pedigree to it. And I think that it was the book of the century, Time Magazine, you know, it was like, it, it was suddenly back in the news a lot as a book, you know? But I think that it was probably intimidating and kind of felt dense and big and all these sprawling characters and worlds and stuff. And I think the thing that Peter Jackson was able to do so well, uh, primar uh, 
in the first film the most, I think. The first film, I think, is the best film out of the three, mm -hmm. and that's why I'm glad that one's on the list so I could talk about the one. I love all of them, but was to make it palatable and fun and to take this world that Tolkien had created and to streamline it for an audience, you know? And there are, there are some times in some of the movies where he, he didn't need to do it as much as he did, but overall, though, what he accomplished is masterful, you know? Like, a guy like me who has read the books eight times, I could have very easily been a snob about it and been like, uh-uh-uh, that's not canon, you know? It wasn't Arwen, you know, who saved the day at the forge. It was, it was Glorfindel, so dumb I am. You know, but I didn't. I understood why he made the change. I understood the idea to put that character to the forefront more because that was going to pay off in the later movies with her and Aragorn's story and how they fall in love and again, she's there for the whole end of the movie and stuff. And so you have to set that character up. If you didn't, I mean, in the book, she says one word. Wow. The entire trilogy. And she's only in, I think, a few scenes, you hmm. know? So she's mainly in the appendices. There's a, there's a whole thing in the Return of the King where there's like hundreds of pages of appendices, which are stories that factor into the world that he didn't fit into the book. And one of them is called Of Aragorn and Arwen. Hmm. And it, it almost reads like Shakespeare. It's gorgeous. So I love the fact that because they had the rights to that as well, they have the rights to all everything in the trilogy, mm. uh, Peter Jackson put that into the actual movie. I thought that was a great choice. So, all right, Emma, are you ready for me to blow your mind? Yeah. I've never seen this from start to finish. What? I had never seen it from start now, to finish. Right? Oh, yeah, I watched it yesterday. You didn't see it in the theater? So, I did. I went, my dad took us because he was around so Christmas. I fell asleep. No, I God. totally fell asleep. Oh, no. And uh, I, I, because I was watching this movie, and when we got to You Shall Not Pass, I was like, I was like, oh, we're, we're close to the end. <laughs> and then... And then I looked at the runtime oh. and I was like, no, we have like over an hour left. As far as I remembered, the movie ended with You Shall Not Pass. I totally fell That'd asleep. That'd be a bummer ending with Gandalf dying. Well, but you know, so, yeah. so I, I, um, I remember, here's what I remember, because I think what's interesting about these, this adaptation in particular, mm -hmm. We've seen in the last handful of years, uh, stepping outside of the fantasy genre specifically, we've seen stuff like John Carter uh, of Mars, we've seen Valerian, these types of things that were so influential on, say, Star Wars. Mm -hmm. they, they were the source material that a lot of something like Star Wars is taken from. And yet, by the time these movies came out, and granted, you can have conversations about you're fine. You can have conversations about the quality of those movies and those examples, and that's one thing. But I think it is valid to say, like, by the time these things finally make it to the big screen, it seems like it's it's like, oh, Star Wars did it. I've seen this already. I've seen it for decades mm -hmm. already. So what I think is so fascinating is for me, as a kid who grew up, I loved Willow. I love Willow. Willow, I love Willow. Yeah. is fucking Lord of the Rings, yeah. except instead of a ring, it's a baby. I oh, know, and they're pretty open about I it. I mean, yeah. I, yeah, Lucas and Ron Howard were like, I mean, I look at like Willow Ugford. He's Bilbo. You know, he's absolutely. Frodo, you know, like, and so I think that for me, like when I got into Lord of the or Fellowship, I was like, I've seen this before. I know. And that movie failed. I was Willow just about, now. That's what I was about to say. Yeah. Is that so I they probably am, were like, let's not try this again. You know, it, it's a it's not a great example in terms of like, oh, you should not make a Lord of the Rings movie because Willow already did it. But that said, for me personally, my little anecdotal experience, I was like, yeah, well, I've seen this. And so I fell asleep in the theater. Oh, no. Then what happened was I had a boyfriend in high school who was uh, a bit of a snob, a bit of like a movie and right. literature snob. And he tried to get me to watch The Two Towers. And I was like, I don't want to watch this. Like I, And so <laughs> I just quit after that. We did not make it through The Two Towers. And I was turned so off to the whole thing. you have not seen The Two Towers? No. Or The Return of the King? No. Now here's Return of the King. Like I'm bawling my eyes out by the end. Well, it won Best Picture. Won like 11 Oscars. Yeah. Well, but you know that doesn't mean anything. Oh, stop it now. Okay, no. but wait. In so, this instance, it did. Okay. So here's here's the question. Here's something on that point that I want to make. I want to bring up. I watched uh, Fellowship and truly, really enjoyed this movie. Like yeah. I finished it later right, right. last night, and I was like, okay, it's too late for me to yeah, start. The stuff is so good. Yeah, but I was like, it's too late for me to start the second movie right now. I mm -hmm. will definitely fall asleep. Like I need to be more, you know, have did more. You watch the extended version or the regular version? I watched the regular version. Yeah. I did. No, I watched the regular yeah. version. Well, you didn't have forty-eight hours to watch all exactly. Three of them? <laughs> no, not this time. But that said, um, so I I will say though. 
the hardest part for me to connect with was uh, with the hobbits, right. with their relationship. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you can tell from a filmmaking standpoint that that is, you know, they are, Peter Jackson loves these characters and that is this through line. You know, mm -hmm. of course you have these heroes and these dashing elves and all of these right. things, but the hobbits are our, our way in. Yeah. And so I was wondering, knowing, as you say, like bawling in the third movie, Am I going to continue to be emotionally, am I going to become more emotionally invested oh, yeah. over the course of these movies? Yeah, so what he's doing is, uh, he's, he deviates a little bit in the first book, from the, uh, the first movie from what the book does. Uh, he treats them more for comic relief a little bit, especially Pippin and Mary, you know, with, with the fireworks mm -hmm. and stealing the mushrooms mm -hmm. and stuff. But I understand why he does it, though, because by, they grow. Those, all the characters grow, and they really are your lens. They're the audience's lens into this bigger, grander movie. They're the ones that are like hanging out in their little village of the Shire, you know, and they're brought into the big, bad world, and because they don't know anything about that big, bad world, we learn it through their eyes. And something that he does masterfully, uh, and you'll see it in the two towers and you watch it, and you'll definitely see it in Return of the King, is not only are those friendships like really, really bonded, but like uh, their growth is so earned. But toward the completely different people at the end of the the trilogy, and nowhere does he does it. Nowhere does he do do it better than with uh, Frodo and Sam. Mm -hmm. Like Sam, in a lot of ways, is the hero of the entire trilogy. And like you don't really get that sense totally in the first book. Right. But you, you trust me, you'll be crying by the end of the third movie. Like he is like the most beloved character in the books. And I just don't want to spoil it for you. Yeah, like, don't spoil it. You know, but like him and Frodo. Oh my God, Mordor. It's, it gets crazy. Yeah, also, I mean, yeah. I I really I am going to continue on this journey, and and I think, but but I will say that was the part that I struggled with then, yeah, and that's sure. the part that I struggle with now. Yeah, you got to go along for the ride, but you know, it, it gets better as it goes. So let's talk about um, adaptations. Yeah. And and doing an adaptation of a beloved yeah. thing, because you know, as you you were saying, Tolkien was your a gateway into, and yeah. I think it was a gateway for a lot of people into reading and this world. Um, and Stephen King is that for a lot of people too. And when you're tasked with ad adapting something. So I want to tell a little story. Okay. Okay. I read Pet Cemetery last summer okay. when you guys had just gone to make the movie. The like, you guys had a reading group, right? Uh, well, actually that was this month's book. So okay. we just, I am in a book club. So you read it again? I did not read it okay, again. Okay, I'm saying, uh, reading it twice in two years. Yeah, that's in, in yeah. one year, it's a by heavy the way. Book. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so you guys went away. Uh, Michael C. Hall reads the audiobook. I'm a big audiobook person. And that was like the first time that Pet Cemetery had an audiobook. Mm -hmm. And so I got that. I listened to it. I really loved it. But as, and, and I will say, I am uh, the, not to take anything away from Mary Lambert's body of work. I do not like the first Pet Cemetery movie. I didn't grow up on it either, though. So I don't have those like formative terror mm -hmm. experiences that a lot of people or kids yeah. kind of do. And that's so much of it. Yeah. It, it really is. So, yeah, okay. With any movie. Yeah. We get, so, so I'm reading the book. And. For those of you who don't know, uh, the premise of the book is that Lewis Creed, a doctor, uh, goes to, uh, he and his, moves his family into Maine and, uh, or up into this farm, uh, or not farm, this like secluded place and to- The to country. Yeah, the so country. The guy moving to the country. To slow down, to slow down. And there's a big freeway in front of his house and, uh, you know, uh, one of his kids is struck by a, uh, a truck and uh, then, you know, his neighbor Judd says, well, there's this thing in town that brings him back mm -hmm. and then chaos ensues. Okay. That is the premise of the Good book. Summary. <laughs> <laughs> except for the part Marketing where I said, should hire you. <laughs> yeah, except yeah. for the part where I said that there was a farm and there is not yeah. a farm. But that said, I bring this up because um, Lewis making the choice to bring his to bring Gage, the little child who is killed mm -hmm. in Pet Cemetery, the book, uh, to bring Gage back does not happen until pretty much the end of the book. It's like more than halfway through. It right? is yeah. crazy. Yeah. Like I noticed, because I, I was doing an audiobook, the audiobook's like 12, 14 hours long. I was at hour nine and yeah. Gage had not come back yet. And I was like, how the fuck are they making this into a movie? <laughs> and so yeah. I present this question to you, like when you are tasked with essence mm -hmm. and and streamlining and also your your movie does it even break two hours i don't think no, it does it's like an hour and 41 minutes so 40 so minutes, yeah. how do you even begin to approach that especially something that is so beloved and known 
Well, on the one hand, that little cat here is squeaking because he knows we're talking about church. He knows we're talking about church. We're talking about church. church. He wanted to be in a movie. Sorry, Max. Well, here's something interesting is uh, that pivotal moment in the story happens at the halfway point of our movie. I don't think it feels that way necessarily, but maybe in a book you might feel a little more, but I think the reason why King does that and the reason why we did that as well, why we didn't push that up too much, is because Pet Cemetery is all about the, the family, the relationships, the conversations they have about death. You want to really, really prepare the reader slash audience for understanding this family and understanding Lewis Creed and his thoughts about death and how he thinks he's a guy that understands death. He's an ER doctor, he's around it every day. It's just a part of life, honey, you know? And the differences with Rachel that and how he views death and how he wants to talk about death to their kids. And if you understand all that stuff intrinsically by the time you get to the big pivotal moment, that pivotal moment is gonna hit you so much harder and then you could play with that in the whole last third of the book. Yeah. So uh, yeah, in a lot of ways the book is structured in a very unique way because I think the whole bottom third of the book is basically just chaos. You uh, know? Yeah. It really is. And it's very front-loaded with everything. But it's such again, it's such a rich mythology. It's such a rich world with the woods, the Wendigo, Judd, you know, uh, Victor Pascal, mm-hmm. the Zelda backstory. Yep. There's just a lot there to chew on. Yeah. So for us, uh, when we were adapting it, it was no question ever that, hey, let's bump this up to like the first act instead, and this will be the, the pivotal moment at the end of the 30-minute mark, you know? To us, it always made sense that the... Uh, and this is not a spoiler. The cat, you know, right. dying would really be that pivotal moment. Yes. Because that's the chain that begins the chain reaction. Yes. You know, and that once the audience gets a taste of the DNA of that idea, you know, of like, okay, we're playing in this Frankenstein type world. Mm-hmm. And if he's willing to do it with the cat, oh boy, you know, like maybe if something more terrible happens than we hope it doesn't, would he be willing to do it then? So by the time something more terrible does happen, uh, the audience goes with it. Yeah. They're able to go with it because they've seen it happen on a smaller scale. So that's why you have to really kind of pace that film and that book out like that. Yeah. Because the idea is so outlandish, you know, if you really just look at it, that you have to earn it. You have to really kind of like live with these people long enough to where it is, doesn't become absurd, you know? So. Yeah. And you talk about, you talked a little bit about like adding, say, um, for for uh, Liv Tyler's character mm-hmm. in in Lord of the Rings in Fellowship, like, like giving her more to do and right. making Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh and Philippa, what is her last Philippa name? Boynes. Yeah. So ma- the, the writing team, knowing the material. Oh, wait, wait. Fran Walsh. Yeah, Philippa Boynes. Uh-huh. Yeah. She's, yeah. Married. She's, she's not married to Peter Jackson, but they're... Correct. Fran yeah. Walsh is married. Or, well... No, no Fran, Fran Walsh... God, no, I, I looked this. it up. I, I know. So I'm going to trust you on this. So Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh are uh, romantic partners Correct. as well kids. as creative partners. Correct. And then Philip Wayne is, is their collaborator. Correct. Yeah, okay. So, um, you know, talking about making the decision to change mm-hmm. iconic literature, mm-hmm. that's like a big thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. That's a big choice. That's a big choice for any director to make, yeah. uh, especially when the literature is so beloved. And you know, we don't have to say exactly what the changes are in your movie. Yeah, but because, there are elements but that have changed. That there yeah. are, yeah. yeah. So can you like, having been in that position yourself yeah. Yeah. as a director with beloved material, mm-hmm. like I mean, yeah, I mean, it's uh, you could choose to kind of let that rule you and be scared of that. But I think most directors, Peter Jackson himself probably didn't do that because, I mean, there are people to, to this day are probably still upset about the changes that he made in the Lord of the Rings movies, you know? But he can't think about that. He has to think about the movie he's making. And as long as you stick to the essence of the source material, you know? We use that word a lot in interviews, but it really is the best word. It really is know the material inside out. And then if you're going to deviate from it, just make sure that at the end of the day you arrive at the same themes and metaphors that the book is. Stephen King was interviewed recently for Entertainment Weekly, and he said... Uh, look, if you're driving to Tampa, it doesn't matter what road you take as long as you get to Tampa, you know? I think he was like Route 37 or whatever. Also, you why know? are you going to Tampa? Yes. Exactly. <laughs> Who wants to go to Tampa? Who's going to My Tampa? My wife is from Jacksonville, so I've been to Florida quite a lot, and I grew up going to Florida, but wait, Tampa is... That's Orlando. Tam- it's Disney, yes, right? Yes, Tampa. So what's in Tampa? Um, um, <laughs> I think he actually has a home in Tampa now because he uh, lives in Florida. That's a, uh, the Buccaneers are in Tampa. I oh, have, this I is a have, sports thing? I have been to, no, 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 it's not a sports thing. <laughs> I went to Tampa for work several years ago. And, I have been to Tampa then. No, you know, Tampa, maybe I need to give you another try. Maybe, But I yeah. was... I will just say that I would never drive to Tampa. Okay, unless you wanted to hang out with Stephen King. I'm assuming he probably lives in Tampa, and that's why he used that. that, that. Hello. Oh, Mel's here. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. 
that scared the crap out of me. <laughs> I turned around. There was a guy standing well, in our It's apartment. funny because I saw him come in, and we were clearly having a conversation, and I thought, he'll just, he'll just leave the packages right there. Yeah. But instead, he needed to and just hello hand or, somebody the packages. But you're, you have a good poker face because I was looking right at you and didn't even know you were looking at a person behind me. Yeah. Ooh, Sur- surprise. Good. I know you got me. <laughs> Anyway, All right, so, so Tampa, Tampa, don't go to Tampa aside, don't go to Tampa. Don't go to Tampa. No. But, uh, you know, that's a good point. And I think that, like, for instance, uh, you know, to use the example of Stephen King's It, which right. is a book that I have read many times. Uh, yeah. As an adult, I don't have, like, an emotional tie to it from being a child. But right. uh, I think the thing that they got right mm-hmm. was saying, here's the essence. Yeah. We're going to give head nods to certain right. sequences, but we are not beholden to yeah. a text that is 30 years old. Yeah, plus is the fact that there's already been the Pet Cemetery movie in 1989, one I like a lot, yep. but it was one that Stephen King produced and wrote the screenplay for. Right. So he's pretty faithful to his to the source material because he wrote it, you know? Right. And that movie is good for what it is, you know? And so we were saying, not only do we want to, I mean, here's, here's what I always say, is that adaptation is not transcription, mm-hmm. you know? Kevin and I, in the past, have done that with other books that have we, projects we've never made. And uh, that has felt like a failure when you do that. It's really that you really want to uh, interpret it through your own vision and just make sure that the the key key themes and metaphors that the author is trying to get across, you have to keep. Because fans have to be able to see the movie and feel like they're getting something new and refreshed, yeah. but that they're also getting Pet Cemetery. Yeah. And so that was, that was the tightrope we were constantly walking. So it wasn't so much our fear was, uh, oh no, we're changing this. The fear was, at the end of the day, we want to make sure that Stephen King, first and foremost, will be able to watch this and see his book. Sure. And he did. He liked. He, he's a big fan of the book, of, of the adaptation, rather. So, uh, you know, I, I think we got there in the end. Yeah. But there was a lot of discussion about it. That's interesting. Sure, you know? um, so about uh, Fellowship of the Ring. Yes. Uh, as a first-time viewer, I have to say... I don't you dare. I, no, no. I was don't gonna say good things. Okay, good. I was gonna say good things. I liked this movie so much more than I thought I yeah, would have. It's a very and, adult movie. And it feels it it is it feels like a great movie. Mm-hmm. And that said though, you touched on this a little earlier. I don't think this this was not a sure thing. Like I no, wanna take the yeah. audience back to, as you pointed out, Game of Thrones wasn't a mm-hmm. TV show then. Dungeons and Dragons had failed. Fantasy was kind of a very 80s thing. Definitely, yeah. Um and uh, and similarly to, you know, New Line has this really fascinating story, uh, history as a studio. Um, if you haven't listened to um, my episode with Lynn Shea, she mm-hmm. talks a lot about her brother Bob Shea, who yep. started New Line. But New Line essentially, the legend goes, put the whole studio on the line to mm-hmm. make Lord of the Rings. Hell yeah, they did. Yeah. And they, um, so not only was this not a sure thing, they gave him three movies. They mm-hmm. said, you're making three movies. They shot them back to back. Which is Meaning some, they were all in. It, yeah. it is something that, while I was watching this, I went back and forth on. Should they have done that? Should they not have done that? Uh, it's a really ballsy, ballsy thing. Yeah. Um, but I think, I mean, I would agree that it paid off, oh, you know, yeah, obviously. You know. Um, Financial. I mean, I think each movie has made almost a billion dollars already. It's crazy. And it, it. I was glad that he didn't feel rushed in some ways, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, because he could tell the whole story over. Timing is everything. I mean, when you're on set, no matter what the budget of your film is, the, the, the hardest thing that you have to contend with as a director on set is the clock. Yeah. You're running out of time. You just never have enough time to make movies, it seems. And at the end of the day, it's, they, it's like they take it away from you. It's like, all right, you're done, you have to stop now. We're pulling the, pl- and like, so you never get to a point where you go, ah, we're done. It just doesn't work that way. <laughs> Not even with the editing, you know? You only finish the editing because the film has to come out, you right. know? So to have the amount of time that he had and to have the crew and the cast that he had, there's a reason why those movies are so good. You know, they were written beautifully, you know, and he obviously respected the source material, but props to New Line, you know, they, they gave them the time to do those movies correctly, and it shows, you yeah. know, so. It's, it's, um, I, I also would love to get your take on an indie guy going to a big movie. Yes. Because <laughs> let's also not forget, you know, right. it's easy for us to go, oh, Peter Jackson, yeah, Peter Jackson. Yeah. Uh, you know, before this, mm-hmm. he was making very weird, small movies. Yeah. And The Frighteners. Probably his biggest film at that point. Which was a flop. Yeah, it and was, I think that was his only studio film at that point. So, Heavenly Creatures, maybe, but, uh, but yeah, I think Frighteners was, was a flop. And so that probably knocked him down a peg a little bit. Yeah. You know, I, think, I don't know. But I mean, to go from that to this, 
that's a huge jump. Do you, you know? see like any of yourself in? Yeah, that? I mean, Starry Eyes was a like a three hundred thousand dollar film. You know, that's very very small. You know, like low budget nowadays is like five million and under. You know, mm -hmm. we were under a half a million. You know, and a lot of that money came through a Kickstarter. You know, and it was just a very small DIY type operation, and so, uh, but it was a tough film to make. You know. Uh, tougher in some ways than this, strangely. You know, mm. we had a bigger ensemble cast to deal with. You know, we didn't have permits. We were running around LA and stuff. <laughs> we had like five hours of makeup every day and only a few people doing it, you know? But uh, here's what I learned from doing a bigger film is that you, the crew gets bigger, you know, mm. and you have more time. I think we had 18 days to shoot Starry Eyes. We had 38 to shoot. Wow, that's a huge Another 20 difference. days, yeah. And even then it didn't feel like enough because you never have enough time. But uh, the thing is... Uh, there are small things that you notice that are different, you know? So you'll say, uh, oh, what's a midday snack? You know, like you'll have breakfast and then you'll think, oh, I'm not gonna be eating again until lunch. And then all of a sudden they're walking around with these trays. Right, yes, like yes. Really good sandwiches and like braised beef soup and stuff. And you're like, so wait, we're having lunch early? And they're like, no, no, it's just a snack. I'm like, this is a snack, you know? Like, and so the food is a lot better, you know? <laughs> There's definitely a lot more trucks and stuff, you know, a lot more people on set. But at the end of the day, though, filmmaking is very hard and it's very stressful. And so these same anxieties and stress and, you know, strenuous uh, that you feel making a $300,000 film, you feel them the same on a bigger film. It's not like they get worse on a bigger film. Uh, mentally, you're juggling more, but like physically, you're, you're the same level of exhausted that you are no matter what the budget, mm -hmm. because filmmaking is hard. You're still in the mud. You're still standing in the rain. You're still walking around in fake blood with it sticking to your sneakers. I mean, it's like... That's just how filmmaking is, no matter how big it is. It's like no one's wearing white gloves when they're working. It's just right. you're down and dirty in the mud, you know, figuratively and literally, yeah. you know? And so there were plenty of nights on Pet Cemetery where I was done. Like, I was like, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. Like, I am done. I get me on a plane right now. I'm mm -hmm. done. I can't. Because I was just so beat up and worn out, mm -hmm. you know? And uh, But I felt those same things on Starry Eyes and on the films we did before that. Yeah. So, I mean... What I would say to indie guys, indie gals that are up and coming is, uh, you know, uh, really, really cherish those moments making smaller films and really do the work then because that work's never going to get easier mm -hmm. even if the money, even if the budget goes up. Yeah. It's going to always be the same level of just exhausting. Yeah. Do you have a favorite scene in Fellowship of the Ring? Oh, man. Uh, the thing I like about the Fellowship more... I love all three films, but the, uh, Return of the King, I, I really am bawling like a, like a baby at the end of that movie multiple times. Uh, but The Fellowship to me is the most like down and dirty out of the three mm. because it's like the chase, the journey. It you know? moves. Yeah, it moves. It you know, moves. like they're on the run and it's like it, there's, there's no huge battle scenes. And I love the big battle scenes. I love Helm's Deep. I love the Battle of the Pelennor Fields, you know. But uh, I love like the, the fight with the cave troll in Moria, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. I love Gandalf's death fighting the Balrog. I love Boromir's death and the sacrifice he makes for mm -hmm. the hobbits. I mean, like, all that stuff is just so heartfelt and emotional, but rugged. There's something just very rugged about that film. Very tactile, the way it looks, you know? Very tactile. It's very tactile, you know? Like, the orcs were all real guys in costume, yes. as they were for the whole trilogy. Yes. You know, and, and Peter Jackson uses CGI, you know, brilliantly, but I don't know. In that film, though, it just feels very organic, you know? My cat's trying Max to bite is me trying to bite you. You want to get on mic, buddy? <laughs> He's trying to eat my food here. But uh, so I love, I mean, I love it for that reason. My favorite scene is, and I love the introduction, they somehow found a way to take three ages worth of history and boil it down to three minutes. It's the, pro the that intro so slash good. prologue is yeah, so well in. done. Uh, so I love that. Uh, I love, you know, the Bridge of Khazad Doom and G Gandalf versus the Balrog, you know, Durin's Bane, they call him in the book. <laughs> uh, but I think my favorite scene, though, is, uh, is Boromir, you know? Uh, fighting off the orcs because he, that character has so much to redeem at that point, you know, and that happens off screen in the book. They hear his horn blowing and they arrive and he's just laying against a tree. Oh, interesting. Half dead with the arrows in him, you know, whereas in the movie and in Ralph Bakshi's version, they both wisely decide to show that whole encounter and to show that actual redemption happening, you know, where he, because he tries to take the ring from right, Frodo and, right. get, and Aragorn charges him with him with protect the two of them and he does everything he can, he can in the end, but he dies trying. And just when he's just laying there and the dying, you know, and he goes, my captain, my king. He says, I want to follow you to the, the end of the world. It's, I'm almost crying right now talking about it, but it just kills me, you know. I, I wrote down uh, for Boromir's death, no one's going to step in and fuck this orc up. 
And then I wrote, I nice of you to join us, Aragorn. He, he's he's got to fight his way there, you know? I know, I know. Oh, I come did. on. When he shows up, though, he's about to shoot that arrow and then, like, cuts off his head. It's just, uh, it's so earned. I, mean, I love it. It is. And it's great. But yeah. I just, like, that Welcome was. finally arrived. Uh, yeah, I was like, thank you for coming. You could have spared like, him a few arrows, you know? Seriously. <laughs> yeah. Like, what's going on? Who the hell is he? <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, I, uh, I also wanted to talk a little bit about Ian McKellen uh, because, yeah. man, like, I, I looked it up. He was nominated for his performance. Right. That for, for Return of the King. Yeah. Um, and That's cool. I forgot that. Because, yeah. I, I, you know, you never know, you know with stuff like that. And, and certainly I wouldn't have expected him to necessarily win because right. it's so hard to win an yeah, Oscar yeah. in general. But, um, but, man, he is... Just, you know, because no matter how popular superhero movies get or fantasy gets or genre horror gets, there's still this stigma in people's eyes. Like yes. it's not real movie making. Definitely. It's yeah. and, and it's not real acting or storytelling. Mm -hmm. That but the I, genre is bigger than the performance. That's exactly yeah. right. right. But I feel like, man, I, there were many times throughout the film where I yeah. and. and Jackson so wisely mm -hmm. shows us his eyes because yeah. he is communicating so much in that performance through yeah. his eyes. Yeah. Uh, it's just really a beautiful no, and performance. That could have been a a character or a role in the movie that was handled too mystically. Yes. You know, like uh, a remove there. Like, oh, he's a wizard. And like, hence, he's not really a real person. Mm -hmm. And he's, he's infallible, you know. And uh, the books do this, and, and Peter Jackson did it wisely, is they show that he's 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 not perfect you know he's very he makes mistakes you know and he, he messes up a few times you know yeah. and he doesn't really have the full plan laid out there's a whole thing in the books where because he quote dies in Moria they Aragorn doesn't really know what to take up after him he says Gandalf if he had a plan for this moment when we were crossing the river he never told me mm. you know meaning he's kind of they're kind of just trying to figure it out to say go right, right. you know th this isn't some grand plan ordained to them you know they're all just figuring out as they go and so he really balances this whole idea of all the worldliness to Gandalf and certain things that you don't know, but at the same time, though, uh, making them feel like a real person. Yeah. You know, like the fireworks are a perfect example, and they do this really well in the books too. Where uh, up until that point, the hobbits and the Shire always kind of knew him as, as he says in the movie, some cheap conjurer of mm -hmm. tricks, like oh, I can make uh, fireworks glow and stuff, and not realizing that he is a Maiar, and a Maiar is a spiritual being. They're like below the angels. Like he was clothed mm. in the body of an old man. Mm. In the books, there's five of them. Mm -hmm. And there's the blue wizards, and they go off east, and you never hear from them in the books. And then there's Saruman, Radagast, and, and Gandalf. Mm -hmm. And each one is designated a color, and each one has a role that they have to do. Mm -hmm. And uh, Gandalf is the one that is, they call him the great pilgrim. He's like the wanderer. He's the one that likes to hang out with the little people, mm -hmm. you know? And he's, he, he's it's so that makes him wise. But having an actor try to figure that out, you know, with a beard and a fake nose yeah. and stuff, and like, he does it. I mean, like, I can now, I'm now rereading the books again, and now I can only see Ian McKellen yeah. whenever I read yeah. those books. You know? um, before, uh, before we move on to the last part, which, by the way, I don't know if you remember this, but you get to add a movie to the list. Do you remember that part? No, but I, I have the movie. Okay, good. So. so before we get there, though, I want to talk about uh, Peter Jackson as a weird horror guy right. making this what feels now very mainstream movie right. um and and because i love that you feel if you know anything about peter jackson you feel his roots right. in this um in this movie you feel yep. there are scares in there mm -hmm. there are you know off-color moments there are and the 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 orcs are scary mm -hmm. and they are practical right. um and uh, so so i i have curious i'm curious if you have thoughts on that as a horror guy who now has worked within you know indie film and within the studio system but could potentially like branch out would you want to you know, how would you feel about going into... Yeah, doing what he did. Yeah. Uh, no, absolutely. You know, so that's what I liked about Pet Cemetery was Kevin and I were really drawn to Pet Cemetery because we always said it's one for us and one for them. Mm -hmm. So when we made Starry Eyes, we weren't saying we're making a gross body horror movie. We were making... Kevin and I were in a place in our careers where we felt like we were shut out mm -hmm. from everything and we felt like we were outsiders looking into this bubble of Hollywood and scratching at the glass, you know, and not we weren't invited in, you know. And so the movie is about an actress that's not invited in and does whatever she can to become a member, you mm -hmm. know. Now, obviously, she goes a certain path that we do not condone, you know. But it just shows you the desperation that people have when they're ambitious for something. Yeah. And so we we did that movie through the lens of an actor, but really you could transpose that to any artist, you know. You could be that, what would a director do to break in, you know. And so 
that was the type of movie we were trying to make there. We weren't just trying to make a body horror movie. We were trying to make a movie about integrity, you know? And so when you look at Pet Cemetery, you say, well, wow, that's a movie about communication, about, you know, being able to talk about death, mm-hmm. about grief, you know? It's doing so much more than, uh, uh, you know, maybe a typical Friday night, you know, horror movie might try to do. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. I, I love a good slasher, or, you know, or I love just a movie that's just a body horror movie, but... This has all those elements. Mm-hmm. So we always said this is one for us and one for them. Mm-hmm. This is one that we'd want to do anyway, you know? And so uh, because we were able to do all those things in this movie, yeah, definitely uh, we got we feel like spoiled on it. We were like, oh, wow, we got to work with all these great actors. And we got to have all these family scenes and these good dialogue scenes, you know? The whole movie just isn't one thing, you know? And so uh, that's what I think Peter Jackson got to do mm-hmm. with, with, with the movies he made after his earlier films was you still saw that... that, that uh, that core of that horror filmmaker and who he was. And I love that you see that even in the Lord of the Rings with mm-hmm. the orcs and stuff. And just, you know, even though you're not really seeing like blood, just how gory it feels, yeah. you know, in some places with some of those battle scenes and stuff. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, I think after Pet Cemetery, Kevin and I would love to continue working in a horror. But at the same time though, I think the thing that links all the stuff that we are into and the scripts that we write is uh, we like movies about characters who want something so bad and in the end they get it but not how they thought they were going to get it. Yes. You know? And so like Rosemary's Baby is a, a perfect example of that. You know, yeah. she wants to be a mother so badly and at the end of the movie she is, you yeah. know, and it's like is she going to love this kid or not? Yeah. It's like she got what she wanted just not how she thought she was going to get it. And so when you're into themes as a writer and a director, you know, like as long as those, it doesn't matter what genre you're doing them in, as long as you're exploring themes that you love, you can yeah. do them under the lens of any genre. Yeah. Westerns, I would do a musical, I would do comedies, you know, all that stuff appeals to me, you know. Yeah. Are you going to tell us what's next? I can't, but it, we might know very soon. Okay. So we're in the middle of a bunch of things right now, too many things. A few look like they might happen, a few are just things that we're really interested in. We have our own scripts that we want to explore as well, but, uh, but yeah, I think that if you... You know, if you like Starry Eyes and you like Pet Cemetery, and you want to continue to see us being those types of filmmakers, you will not be disappointed. One thing, okay, really for reals before we move on, yeah. uh, one thing I noticed that was similar in between Starry Eyes and Pet Cemetery that felt very Dennis and Kevin to me right. was um, the idea or the vision, the idea of not being able to trust the thing you're seeing. Yes. So, so like, is this happening? Is this not happening? Is this all in their mind? Mm-hmm. Um, am I, would I be correct in, in right. saying that that's a very, that's something yes. that you guys are interested in? Yeah, uh, we're definitely into that. I mean, you're talking about like the surreal aspect of it? Sort of, just like uh, there are moments where, you know, um, let's say Lewis is looking into a doorway and Mm -hmm. it looks like he is completely somewhere else and then we come back and, oh, it's just a doorway. And certainly with Starry Eyes, there are moments where you go, is this... Oh, <laughs> he is getting fed. <laughs> oh, wailing kitties. Uh, but certainly in Starry Eyes, there are moments where you know you're like, is this like in her mind? Is yes. this happening? Okay, that's what like, you're talking about. Do you know yeah. what I mean? No, we love that stuff. I mean, I, uh, when we were pitching on this film, that was one of the things that Stephen King does so well in his books. So that wasn't really in the uh, script when we came on board, mm. and we were like, we we want to be a little more surreal and visual, you know, mm-hmm. and be as cinematic as we can. So one of the things that was really important to us were those scenes when. Uh, Victor Pascal comes to visit yes, him at night, yes. you know? And rather than just, you know, following God of the woods, we were like, what if, like, the trees get closer to the window almost like the woods are trying to draw him in? And again, that was a reference to Throne of Blood and Akira Kurosawa movie, you know? And then we're like, what if when he opens the door, there's no hallway, but you're looking into the woods? Yes. And then when you're outside the woods looking in, you're just seeing, a, like, a floating doorway, which is sort of like a nod to the drawing of the three, the cover of The Dark Tower, book two, another mm. Stephen King book, you know? And so we, we, you know, we like to have fun with that sort of stuff because... Uh, you know, I think that movies, sometimes logic could kill a movie, especially a horror movie. Sure. You explain things too much. And I think that sometimes just, it, as long as you're just visually interesting, the audience will glean from you kind of what you're trying to say in the scene. So with those nightmare sequences, we were really excited about those because it, it, it gave us like a playground to kind of have fun a little more mm-hmm. visually. Yeah, I like uh, them. Yeah. And that it felt to me, uh, maybe I'm wrong, but it felt to me, I was like, oh, that's... Right. That's them. Yeah. This is Good. this is them. So then we'll try to do more of that. Yeah. Be like, so- <laughs> yeah we'll keep doing that. <laughs> um, all right. So before we move on, is there anything else that you uh, would like to say about Fellowship of the Ring? God. Uh, Not enough cats. I know that. But know. aside from that. I think he wants to be in it. <laughs> what are you meowing for, buddy? Max? No, just uh, 
I would tell you to watch the extended edition because okay. it's not just bloat. Like, hey, we got all this extra fat we want to put back in the movie. There are things that are amazing that he just couldn't fit into the movie. Or mm. The runtime is too long that are just, they really just enriched the film. So would, would you say, say extended across the board? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. I, don't even, I, don't, I don't even watch the original. Because, you know, there is flack for The Hobbit, like the Hobbit trilogy. Mm. You know, he did catch flack for being like, yeah. did you really need to do No, I get it. And, like, I, I was very conflicted about those movies when I first saw them. I saw those all alone in the theater. Like, oh. Nobody was going with me. Like, you'd I, I, <laughs> be a super nerd to sit through all that, you know. And I did. And I, I, I walked away conflicted, you know. And... Just recently now, when I've been reactivated on my Tolkien, you know, obsession, I went back and I rewatched them all, the extended versions, mm -hmm. and I kind of love them now. Of The Hobbit. Of The Hobbit. Okay. I'm like, I know that there was a lot of things that maybe he didn't need to do, you know, they didn't maybe need to be three movies, but they are three movies, and I go back and watching them again with, like, lower expectations and just kind of seeing what he was doing, they're fun. Like, yeah. I, I like them a lot now, and I'm going to continue to watch them throughout my life. So okay. like, I'm glad that I actually have six movies now to pull from, and the upcoming TV show for Amazon, yes, too. Yes, absolutely. I know, which I think they're doing like five seasons of. So. It's going to be cray. That yeah. is cray. All right, uh, are you looking up your... I'm preparing You're preparing? Yeah. All right. I so, got a few mine, but I, I write down all the movies that I watched, these older movies, and I rank them all. Oh. So... Where do you... Do you rank them publicly or just on your phone? Nah, just on my phone. And, and that's just for you? Correct. It's good yeah. though because you know I say that half jokingly, but right. honestly, I there are so many times where I go, oh, I, I'm trying to pull a reference and I just don't have it, and I'm right. like, Clark, you need to write this stuff down. Like yeah. if you don't write it down, you're not going to remember it. So I can't, I can't uh, give okay. you too hard of a time for it. Okay, so I've stalled enough for you. Everybody okay. gets to add a movie to the list that is not on the this list. Is so hard. I know. Oh my god. But you know the reason that I did this is because The Thing, John Carpenter's The Thing, yeah. is not on the thrills list. Oh, wow. And yeah. I just, you know, I've said this many times on the pod, but I'll say it again. I just feel like that is objectively incorrect. If we are talking about mm -hmm. the most thrilling American movies, I don't know how you can't have John Carpenter's The Thing Wow, yeah. on that list. It's objectively incorrect, AFI. So uh, that's why I give everybody the chance to do this. I just don't want to pick a movie that's on the list. Well, it's okay. It doesn't, like it doesn't matter. Uh, so I'm just quickly scrolling through the list. Well, I'm you can give us a couple of choices. I know. I'm going to give you older movies, people, because uh, Clark, everybody, you need to watch older movies. Yes, right? I, I do often. Learn where we came from. Yeah, except for you picked a movie from 2001. I know. So <laughs> I'm such a hypocrite. So I, I've got to make up for that right now. Okay, so make up for I it. will say A Face in the Crowd. Okay. So would be would be the one. So uh, facing the crowd, if you want to know what's going on in the world right now with uh, the president and politics and how we got to this place, go watch Elia Kazan's A Face in the Crowd. I think it's in the mid-60s. So it's way ahead of its time. And it's basically about how we fall in love with the idea of a person that's not true, you know, to the point where that person, you know, rises as quickly as they do. And so it's just, it's funny, it's emotional, but it's scary. I mean, like, you watch this movie and you're like, oh, holy crap. Like, this movie predicted exactly what happened here, yeah. you know? And so I would say Elliot Gazan's A Face in the Crowd is easily one of the best classic films, films in general I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. And you should watch it yearly to remind yourself of basically what's going on. I don't <laughs> know why this is ringing a bell for me. I'm wondering if somebody else might have picked it too. But maybe, maybe, maybe not. But maybe. I don't know. But that's a good one. Yeah. Either way, I haven't uh, seen it. It's from 1957, it. so I was a little off. And it's, uh, yeah, it's Andy Griffith, as you've never seen him. Yeah. And Patricia Neal. And it's just, uh, it's just scary. And it has, oh my God, one of the best gut punch punches. Get gut punch endings you're ever going to see where you're just like holy crap just ends in a crazy fever dream of just chaos and just just kind of like a perfect film so I would say everyone go watch A Face in the Crowd I feel like somebody else has recommended this yeah, one yeah it's one of those movies where I just had to double check but it doesn't appear to be yeah, on the AFI Top 100 list which I'm shocked by I think uh, On the on the uh, Waterfront by Ali Kazan is and yes. that's the movie he's most yes. known for and I, I love that movie too but A Face in the Crowd to me is his best movie well and also you know we've we've discovered uh, throughout doing the list that it's it's like you get most people get one unless you're like Steven Spielberg and you get four but yeah, you know exactly. aside from that like so so it's always it's yeah. not always the best one that actually makes it yeah. onto the list it's like the one that and he might have a few, but I'm yeah. but I'm pretty sure that one's not on there. So yeah, based on the crowd, 1957. That's great. Good choice. All right. Our, and you know what? We kept it under an hour. We did. Yes. Even. And now I can finish my lunch. Yes. I'm staring at next to me. Yes. Shut my damn cat up. 
<laughs> he's he's fine. He's fine. He's, he wants to be on. He mic. wants to be a star. He does. He always does this when people. Well, are Dennis, I'm so happy that you did this. Yeah. Thank you for making time because you are off to go do a super nerdy thing. I know. I so I'm leaving. So first of all, we have press in New York and sorry and sorry as and Pet Cemetery is having its little New York premiere at the Brooklyn Horror Fest Wednesday night cool. at the Nighthawk Cinema, which is awesome. But I'm leaving a day early, and this ties into your, this episode because. J.R.R. Tolkien is having an exhibit at the Morgan Museum Library in uh, New York. They had it in England first, and then it made its way to New York. I don't think it's ever going to come to L.A., so this is my only chance to see it. It's running until, I think, May 1st, and it's basically an exhibit of uh, his letters, manuscripts. Like I can actually look at paper where he wrote words on, which is amazing for me, all his original artwork, and so I am going to geek out for an entire afternoon. <laughs> I love <laughs> Just that. Just welcome to the exhibit. It's perfect timing. Perfect. It's yes. serendipitous. I know. It's and you deserve it. You've been working your butt off. I need a break. Yes. N need a little break. I need a little vacation. Soon. Soon. Yes. But until then, go see Pet Cemetery. Yes. April uh, 5th. April 5th. Bring a lot of people to see it and then see it again. Not May 5th. Like no, our April no, Fool's. No. Like that was April actually 5th. a very good April gotcha. Fool's Day joke. You totally did. All right, Dennis. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> friends that's going to do it for me today I hope you enjoyed this episode this is definitely one of my favorites not just because Dennis and I have been friends for so long but because he is a wealth of knowledge uh, not only about film in general but uh, about working within the entertainment industry and he and Kevin are two of the best guys that you'll ever meet I'm so proud of them I am thrilled for them uh, that is Pet Cemetery hits theaters this Friday April 5th from directors Dennis Widmire and Kevin Kelsch um, this this Thursday on the on my Patreon, I will be doing an AMA episode. So if you are a five dollar and higher contributor and you have access to those uh, to those AMA episodes, go on over there. Send me a question. Send me your thoughts. Any topics you want to dive into, and we will we will do it. Um, alrighty, friends, that's gonna do it for me today. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.